So, Squirrel will say something about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. he will. He will. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. It's good to have you with us on Monday, January 16th, 2022. We are already past the halfway point of the first month of, or 2023, I said 2022. <sighs> I still occasionally write 19-something on checks, so on the rare occasion when I actually have to write a check, I have done that. It is January 16th, 2023. We are more than halfway through the first month of the year as we, as time continues to march on, slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Well, this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, history, theology, current events, and whatever else it is I want to talk about, the care and feeding of small rodents, etc., and we webcast live at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And then the podcast is available wherever fine podcasts are found. Uh, you can get us on Apple, Google, etc. Tune in, Audacity, Odyssey, whatever the... <laughs> I don't even know them all. Uh, there's, I'm, I'm on a bunch. Spotify, I'm on Spotify. So you can find us just about anywhere. Just Google Squirrel Chatter and you'll find us. We're also found at the Christian Podcast Community because we are a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. And I encourage you to head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com and check out all the great theologically sound podcasts. Not monolithic. Uh, we do have some, some different uh, theological views on secondary matters. But you are going to find faithful men and women who are, who are dedicated to the truth of God's word and, and uh, to our Lord and Savior at the Christian Podcast Community. So head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. And it is Monday. That means it is Monday meanderings. And uh, I have gotten quite a bit of support for the new format um, uh, we're not reading last year. We read through the entire legacy standard Bible and that took up the, the bulk of the podcast last year. Um, this year we're doing it a little bit different. Uh, I, I didn't want to read through the Bible again, uh, on, on the podcast. I'm still reading through it again, but, uh, that's just for my own personal devotions. Um, so we are looking at, uh, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, we're going through books of the Bible at a much slower pace with commentary, and and I'm getting a lot of positive feedback for that. Monday is still me, Monday Meanderings, where we talk about the events of of our modern time and uh, anything else like that that I, I feel like I need to to bring up. Oh, I'm I'm thinking of Monday Meandering as my, the closest I'll ever come to doing a Rush Limbaugh type show. Um, and then Thursdays, we're going through the 
1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith on Theology Thursdays. And Fridays, we're going through the Federalist Papers and the, the founding documents of our nation on Federalist Friday. I got a lot of feedback on Federalist Friday over the weekend asking me to do commentary as I read through each of the Federalist Papers, similar to the way I do it on you know, going through the 1689, where I'll talk about what, what the, uh, what the, the, that particular Federalist paper is talking about. And so I'm considering that. Um, it really wouldn't be all that much work for me, um, because I'm already reading commentaries and stuff on the Federalist papers. Um, so we may do that. Stay tuned. Watch for Friday's episode. Um, but today is Monday Meandering. Tomorrow and Wednesday we'll continue to look at Deuteronomy. Um, we got about halfway through chapter one last week. Um, I was actually thinking I'd be going through a chapter a day, and that's just not going to happen. So we're going to move at whatever pace we move, doing what we're calling a, a study Bible level exposition. We're not doing a, a deep dive. We're not doing a sermon every week, but we're doing, you know, just just reading through the the scriptures and talking about what it says and what it means, and you know, pointing out interesting things, important things, pointing out, you know, or, or trying to clarify uncertain things or, or things that that uh, that are not known to our modern understanding, you know, cultural. Uh, cultural things that, that inform our understanding of the scripture. That sort of thing is, is where we're going. And that's Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And like I said, we're going through Deuteronomy first. Don't know how long it's going to take. It'll take what it takes. Um, like I said, a lot of positive feedback on that. that. I've appreciated that. And if you have feedback, you can drop me an email at squirrelchatter at protonmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas or suggestions or, or things that you would like to bring up, that's always good to hear from you. Um, you know, we don't do a call-in program, but uh, I do like your emails. Mm. I also like coffee. This is Montana Coffee Traders Trailblazer Blend. I just got another five-pound bag last week, so I'll be drinking Trailblazer for a while. That... Uh, I I like good coffee, and I don't mind mixing it around. So I really enjoyed the, the Squirrely Joe's coffee I had the first few weeks of of 2023. That was good stuff. And uh, I finished my Herb's House house blend the, the week before the Christmas week. So now we're back to the Montana Coffee Traders stuff. And I'm sure I'll be bouncing around um, between coffee blends for a while because you just can't drink the same thing every day. It's like when you go to Chick-fil-A. Usually, you just get an original sandwich. That's the best thing on the menu. But every once in a while, you get a spicy or you get some nuggets, something to mix it up. Right? 
you just got to do it. Mrs. Squirrel likes the grilled chicken. So I have never even actually tried the grilled chicken sandwich at, at uh, Chick-fil-A. I want that crispy, pickly, crunchy. Mm. I haven't had breakfast yet. Sorry, I'm getting hungry. All right, well, let's begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. And then we've got a devotional reading from John MacArthur's uh, Daily Readings in the Life of Christ. And then we'll get into our Monday meanderings. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. Jesus' Purposeful Baptism Then Jesus arrived, coming to John to be baptized by him. That's Matthew 3.13 A and B. Dr. MacArthur writes, in the original text of this passage, the wording to be baptized emphasizes purpose in this momentous appearance by the Lord Jesus. But it was extremely difficult for John the Baptist to understand why the God-man would need to be baptized. John's baptism was for the confession of sin and repentance. But Jesus, as the Lamb of God, had no need for such baptism. It is hard to see why one who would take away sin would need to submit himself to a ceremony that symbolizes death to sin and rising to spiritual life. Because John knew so well that Jesus was the sinless Messiah, come to fulfill God's redemptive purpose, he tried to prevent him, Matthew 3.14. The Greek pronouns in John's statement, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? are all in the emphatic position, underscoring his strong bewilderment over the situation. This was not a direct refusal, as Peter might have given, see Matthew 16.22, but the Baptist no doubt misunderstood Jesus' request, thinking he could not possibly intend to undergo baptism. All sinners need the repentance that baptism symbolizes, but many, such as the Jewish teachers and leaders of Jesus' day, do not seek true repentance. Jesus, on the other hand, purposed to receive John's baptism to show his complete obedience to God's will. Ask yourself, the same Jesus who walked with such resolve and determination throughout his earthly life has a distinct and daily purpose for yours. What piece of this plan are becoming clearer to you? Pray that he will continue to reveal and that you will continue to follow. All right. Excuse me. Monday meandering. Got a couple of topics for us today, a few topics. The first, um, we haven't talked in a couple of weeks because we didn't, we didn't do a Monday meandering last week because last, no, we did. I was here Monday. It was Tuesday. I wasn't here. Anyway, 
we're only two weeks into the year, and I'm already getting flustered and confused by the ends, events of the day. But we went through a long period of time uh, when I was uh, taking time off for uh, the 12 days of Christmas when I we didn't do a Monday meandering. And also for the two weeks prior to that, I did a double reading days because I had to catch up from being sick. So the last month of, of 2022 was, was devoid of commentary on current events here on Squirrel Chatter. So we've got a lot to talk about, things that have happened in the last few weeks. And one thing I want to talk about is the House Speaker fight. Yes, I know that was a while ago. It's not a current event. It's weeks old. But I still a couple of things I want to take. I want to say about it. A couple of observations I want to make. First, the two huge advantages that a republic has over a pure democracy is that a republic protects the rights of the minority and a republic exercises the rule of law. In a pure democracy, there is no protection for the rights of the minority and it's not the rule of law, it's the rule of the majority. Um, as, as somebody said, you know, um, a pure democracy is three wolves and a chicken voting on what to eat for dinner. Um, so, but a, a republic protects the rights of the minority and a republic is dedicated to the ideal of the rule of law. And, and so we saw a, a minority of the majority party, um, a minority of the incoming Republican majority in the House, who held out on the speaker vote in an in an attempt? Now I believe there, there were I, um, there was a group that just did not want uh, McCarthy to be the leader, and they had their reasons, and and I think they were good and valid reasons, and they wanted they wanted somebody else. When it became clear that that wasn't going to happen. You had two groups in the quote-unquote holdouts. You had a group led by Chip Roy, who is fabulous. And he was, his group wanted some reforms in the rules package. And particularly they were holding out for one thing. They wanted the ability to make a motion to vacate the chair um, allowed by one person so that any person, any member of Congress could make a motion to vacate the chair. In other words, to fire the speaker. Now, that's the way it had been for years centuries, going back to the earliest days of the Congress. And that had been changed by Nancy Pelosi when she took the majority. 
Now, I'm not sure if that was changed in the majority that she just ended or if that was changed in the majority that she had pre previously before the Paul Ryan speakership. I'm not sure. But in any case, she had changed that rule so that only a member of House leadership could move to vacate the chair, which, of course, the House leadership in many ways owe their jobs to the Speaker, and they're not going to move on that. Excuse me. Frog in the throat. And so we saw this minority holding out for these rules changes. The other smaller group, there was, there was I think, 20 or 21 um, members of the House majority that were the, the holdouts on the McCarthy speakership. And so that was the larger group of them. There was a smaller group in the holdouts who were adamantly opposed to McCarthy's speaker. And they were led by Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert. And, and they included Montana Representative Matt Rosendale, who, who is not, no, longer my resident, uh, no longer my representative because we now have two in our state. Um, he is now the, re the representative for the, the eastern half of the state. Um, and uh, my representative is, is Ryan Zinke. Um, Ryan Zinke was supporting the McCarthy speakership. Matt Rosendale was opposed to it. And I appreciate both of these men greatly. Um, because there was nothing wrong with opposing the speakership. And, and this was not some great criminal act that was being taken place. This was the exercise of democracy. The only thing is, these negotiations were taking place in public. Most of the time, these, these leadership issues in a party are settled before they get to the floor of the House for the speakership vote. But this time, they weren't. And so the fact that the Republicans taking four days to decide on the leadership doesn't mean that they're in disarray. Uh, there was a lot of, oh, look, the Republicans, it's just chaos. It's chaos. Okay. Yes, I think this was the third, no, the fifth, uh, uh, number five in the number of votes required to elect a speaker in the history of Congress. The, the record was back in 1855, 1856, somewhere like that where it would took over two months and there were 133 votes. Um, this is the longest since the Civil War, but there were, there were quite a few speaker fights in the 1800s, apparently, that took longer and involved more votes. But 15 votes was significant. Um, normally, it's one vote. The majority party elects their leader as, as speaker, and that's it. And, but in this case, there was some disagreement and stuff. Now, they're not in disarray, and it doesn't really weaken McCarthy's speakership. In fact, I think it makes it more strong. Um, after a week, uh, 
the GOP and McCarthy are polling well. Um, the the rank-and-file Republicans were not at all upset by the week of wrangling over the speakership. Um, you didn't have, you know, there, there really wasn't a lot of Republican commentary against the holdouts. Quite a bit from the left, because they're, they're, they were pointing at this and saying, just look how, how messed up they are, and this is going to be awful, and blah, blah, blah. Forgetting that Nancy Pelosi, while she was handily elected speaker, had to deal with the squad of AOC and Ilian Omar and, and that group of six or eight Democrat Congress people who were f far to the on the left end of the Democrat Party. And when you're on the left end of the Democrat Party, you're on the left. And and they the uh, Speaker Pelosi had wrangles with them. And, and so this is typical of a party because even in a party, you're dealing with individuals with a spectrum of views and beliefs, even though hopefully in a political party, the, the core beliefs will be the same. And I believe the core beliefs of the GOP are fairly well established. What we have seen, and I think this is, is telling, what Rush Limbaugh used to call the Rockefeller Republicans, the establishment Republicans, the, the business interest Republicans who were not necessarily ideologically conservative, but were fiscally conservative, wanting things that were good for business. That wing has lost a lot of power. And one of the reasons they have lost a lot of power um, really can be pointed at the speakership of Paul Ryan during the first two years of the Trump administration. The voters had elected um, a Republican president, a Republican Senate, and a Republican House. And they had done so for specific reasons. There were things that had been done in the Obama years that conservatives wanted to see undone. And all parties involved, the, the Senate Republicans, the House Republicans, and Donald Trump had promised to undo these things. And then along came Paul Ryan as speaker, and he did not, he, he fought President Trump's agenda on, on, on issues that the Republicans had promised to take care of. And you also had um, uh, in, the, in the Senate, I mean, I, I look back on John McCain. John McCain was not my favorite <laughs> Republican senator by any means, and I never could understand why the, the good people of Arizona kept electing him. John McCain was not a conservative. 
And one of the things that John McCain ran on in his last election was the overturning of Obamacare. When the legislation to overturn Obamacare came to the Senate, John McCain was essentially on his deathbed. He was suffering from cancer, and he was dying, and he was home in Arizona, and he flew to Washington to cast the deciding vote not to overturn Obamacare. Overturning Obamacare was one of his specific campaign promises in that last election. Yet he went to Washington and cast that opposing, the, the deciding vote against overturning Obamacare. So what we have seen is that that disillusioned a lot of Republicans. It exposed, you know, what, what now we call rhinos, Republicans in name only, that are not, you know, they're, they're quote-unquote swamp creatures. They're members of the Uniparty. There's a lot of ways to describe them. There's, a, there's an elite, quote-unquote, ruling class who think that by virtue of, you know, divine right of kings, they are the rulers of the United States. And the people with this attitude can be found in both the Democrat and the Republican Party. That establishment Republican wing. I remember these are these are people that didn't like Ronald Reagan back in the 80s. Ronald Reagan received a lot of pushback from his own party. Despite winning two huge landslide elections. Excuse me. With huge coattails. He was receiving pushback from his own party. Ronald Reagan was so popular that he was able to use his popular support from the American people to get major conservative legislation past a Tip O'Neill-led Democrat Congress. Um, but he was opposed by the Republicans on some issues. It's the Republican Party is the reason why um, Ronald Reagan was not able to get rid of the Department of Education. Jimmy Carter had taken the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare with one secretary and had created two departments out of it, the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Education. And Reagan, being against big government, was like, no, we don't need another agency. I'm not even sure we needed health, education, and welfare, to be honest with you. But Ronald Reagan got pushback from the establishment Republicans because they are not opposed to big government. And the reason they're not opposed to big government is because the bigger the government is, the more powerful the Washington politicians are the more power and control they have over your and my life. A smaller government lets us do what we want with the exception of, you know, don't kill anybody and don't steal anything. 
they, you know, and a few safety regulations, you know, don't drive 110 miles an hour. Limited government is great. Unlimited, vast, overreaching government is not. And that is what we have had really since Woodrow Wilson, to be honest about it. It's been over 100 years now that we have been dealing with this behemoth of large government. So the rules concessions that the holdouts were able to negotiate um, were good and needful changes. And like I said, many of them were undoing changes that have been done by the Pelosi and the Democrats. And we have seen that the, the rhino establishment Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party has lost a great deal of power and influence. And actual conservatives are on the ascendancy in the Republican Party. And that's a good thing. Um, because we need conservatisms. We need smaller government. We need all of that. So that's the speaker race and just some of the things that I wanted to, to point out there. The other big story, and this one's just from last week, is Joe Biden's classified documents. <laughs> when I wrote these notes on last week, and I've been adding to them over the weekend, I wrote down that three batches of classified documents have been found. Then I listened to the news this morning, and it turns out that there have now been four batches of classified documents. Now, the first batch that came to light were found at the Penn Center at the University of Pennsylvania. And this is at a Chinese-funded think tank where Biden served as a professor at University of Pennsylvania between his vice presidency and his presidency. I don't know how many classes he taught. <laughs> I don't even know how much time he spent in the office. Um, it's just one of those things that, you know, cushy university job for to reward liberal politician sort of thing. And that happens all the time. And so this was a, a Chinese-funded think tank. And there at this office was found these classified documents. And they were found in November. They were found before the midterm elections. So they were kept quiet. Um, it says that the, the national, we were told that the National Archives were were informed and the Department of Justice was informed when these documents were found. This is just to show you how political the Department of Justice is and the National Archives is that they went after Donald Trump for much less and raided his home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, when he was cooperating with the archives. Yet there's no raid coming forth on Joe Biden, nor has the Department of Justice leaked all the information about Joe Biden's classified documents that they leaked about the ones that Donald Trump was in possession of. 
So that was the first batch. The second batch was found in the Delaware garage where Joe keeps his Corvette as he, you know, in a locked garage. It's not parked out on the street. So, you know, there's these documents in the garage. Apparently more were found in the Delaware residence in a room off the garage. You know, was it the, the laundry room? I mean, what rooms are normally off the garage? So, and then it came out over the weekend that more documents were found at his home office at the Delaware residence. Now, remember, this is the Delaware residence where President Biden spends more time than he does at the White House, where there are no visitor logs. Anytime somebody visits the White House, there's a log of who they were, why they were there, and who they met with. And I, I, I believe the Secret Service probably even keeps track of who goes on White House tours. <laughs> you know, the public that comes in. Have they, are they allowing White House tours anymore? I remember going through the White House, gosh, I was eight or nine. Um, Jimmy Carter was president. And we, we took took a tour through the White House. No, it wasn't Jimmy Carter. It was Gerald Ford. I toured the White House when Gerald Ford was president. I toured the governor's mansion when Jimmy Carter was president. In fact, I met Jimmy Carter. The uh, And this is one thing. Jimmy Carter was, was actually a, a very pleasant person, even though he is both politically and theologically liberal, he, he was a nice guy. Still is, I guess. He's, what, 98? Um, but he, my grandfather was part of the Georgia Botanical Society. My grandfather was, was huge into flowers and stuff. He was, he was very much a gardener. Um, uh, which is interesting because he was Army Intelligence <laughs> during World War II, and he was a spy in post-war Austria after, after World War II. He was spying on the Russians, um, and, and all sorts of interesting stories there that I wish I knew because he would never talk about it. We got, we got just enough to know interesting things. But after the war, he took up gardening. And he was, I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I had to spend in his darkened basement watching slides of wildflowers that he had taken pictures of on hikes. <laughs> so interesting, interesting things. Um, but anyway, he was a member of the Georgia Botanical Society, and the Georgia Botanical Society took care of the grounds at the governor's mansion in Georgia. I don't know if they still do, but it was a they 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 took care of the the planters and stuff like that. And I was with my grandfather one day when he was at the governor's mansion gardening, planting flowers and cleaning, you know, weeding flower beds and and maintaining the, the flower beds. And Governor Jimmy Carter is walking 
around in the on the grounds of the governor's mansion, taking a walk, you know, probably thinking something over or who knows what. And he stopped to talk to my grandfather. He knew his name. He was very friendly. Um, met me, you know, I was, gosh, five, six years old, maybe seven. Met me and, and we were, well, let's see, it was sort of in, he was elected president in 76. So he was governor in the early 70s. So yeah, I was six, seven, maybe eight. And, and very nice guy, you know. Um, but I, I think, you know, that that's totally nothing to do with the fact that the visitor's log at the Biden residence doesn't exist. Um, there's been a lot of speculation. One of the things that why he spends so much time there, I think we've all witnessed his, um, lapses of concentration, et cetera, in his speeches and whatnot. Um, the press is not talking about it, but it's there, and anybody that's watching is aware of it. Well, there's no visitor's log at the Delaware residence, so he could be receiving visits from medical teams, keeping him propped up as much as possible. Um medical teams that would have to be logged in and out of the White House, which would be public knowledge. Yet they can come and go at the Delaware residence without any record being kept. So that's probably one of the reasons. I, I believe that's one of the reasons why he spends so much time there. But there's also no visitor log there. These these so there's no you know, no telling who had access to these documents. And these are documents that seem to date from, from, from what I've been able to glean, these date from when he was vice president. And they mostly deal with Ukraine and China. And Ukraine and China are at the center of all of this Hunter Biden stuff. And in the midst of all of this, it turns out that Hunter Biden was renting, quote unquote, property from Joe Biden. Maybe in this house, maybe in another house. For like fifty thousand dollars a month. I saw a thing that over the weekend said that the average rental price in that area of Delaware, you know. It's an upscale area, but they're they're talking you know four to five thousand dollars a month for some of these houses, nowhere close to fifty thousand dollars a month. Folks, we call this money laundering. This was how the ten percent for the big guy got entered into his legitimate income. Um, was through you know rent rental income. <laughs> And then he probably happily paid taxes on it. And yeah, so yes. So anyway, these, these documents have been found and this is, this is actually becoming a big deal. And one of the reasons it's becoming such a big deal is the fact that 
the Dems have been so harsh in their condemnation of President Trump and the um, uh, classified documents that were at Mar-a-Lago. And so their whole thing, they, the, honestly, the, the, the Democrats want to see President Trump charged criminally with some violation of the Official Secret Act or whatever to keep him from running for president. They want him to be, quote unquote, unelectable. And so that's been a big, that was the January 6th committee. That was that whole push. That's why he was impeached twice. The swamp fears him, and I think with good reason. Um, and so the, he is target numero uno for the Democrats. Uh, target number two is Ron DeSantis. Um, and so we need to keep both of these guys in our prayers um, because I think they're, they separately and collectively are very important to the future of our nation right now if our nation is going to have any future. So the, the Democrats have floated the idea, and, and this came out over the weekend and, and toward the end of last week and then over the weekend, they floated the idea that the documents that have been found in Joe Biden's possession or in offices that belong to Joe Biden or properties that belong to Joe Biden or locked up next to Joe Biden's Corvette, the Democrats have started floating the idea or floated the idea last week that these documents must have been planted by the Republicans to offer cover for Donald Trump and to help Donald Trump. Georgia Representative Hank Johnson, let me read his quote. He says, my response to it all is that alleged classified documents showing up allegedly in the possession of Joseph Biden, there's so much that needs to be investigated. But I'm suspicious of the timing of it. I'm also aware of the fact that things can be planted on people. Things can be planted in places and then discovered conveniently. That may be what has occurred here. I'm not ruling that out. Now, Hank Johnson is the same guy who, 10 years ago, in an armed services committee meeting, questioning the um, stationing of American troops on Guam. And at the time, the, the number of troops were being increased on Guam. And so he's questioning in an armed services committee. He, he talked about the size of Guam and he was worried that stationing more American troops there might cause the island to capsize. Yeah, and he actually said that. And I've watched the video, and his office later came out and said, oh, he was just being facetious. He was, you know, no, he wasn't. <laughs> Go back and watch the video. Uh, he, he was being absolutely serious. Um, and I loved the, the, the general or admiral or whoever he was questioning. His reply was, we don't anticipate that happening. 
So that's Hank Johnson, who now wonders if these documents were planted by someone. And the same, eye that, the same idea that the Republicans are responsible for the Biden classified documents was floated on The View by Joy Behar, who said Donald Trump has to be the luckiest person alive. Because the discovery of these documents has really torpedoed the uh, um, any possible prosecution of Trump over the Mar-a-Lago documents. So let's one of the things about these documents that we need to understand. First off, the government has a tendency to overclassify stuff. What do I mean? I mean they classify stuff that isn't really something that needs to be classified. The, the Obama administration routinely classified documents that were politically embarrassing so that they couldn't be released in a Freedom of Information Act request, etc. You've seen some of the stuff that's put out by Washington that's just heavily redacted, you know, got lines written through it so you can't, can't read it, you know. Um, there was just a big document dump from the Kennedy assassination, which was 1963. There was a document dump, and there's still documents that are being withheld as classified from something that happened almost 60 years ago. And so people are, you know, you, you wonder, I mean, it's almost 60 years ago. I think there's still classified documents from World War II because the government, you know, the, they, they routinely and habitually slap classified notices on stuff that they don't want anybody else to read, not because necessarily of the sensitivity of the documents, but because they don't want people to know what they're up to. And so there's a there's an overclassification of documents. The other thing is that every president, every administration, because Biden wasn't president, he was vice president. Every administration ends up, you know, former administration ends up in many ways with in possession of classified documents. Much of it due to the fact that these documents were overclassified in the first place. Sometimes, you know, as, as was found out in the Mar-a-Lago Trump documents, is that while many of these documents were marked top secret, they had been declassified. And, and they just didn't print out new copies that didn't have the classification marks. So, you know, don't panic. There was nothing of, of huge national security interest there. So, you know, I think this is something that, you know, Bill Clinton ended up with classified documents. Barack Obama, George W. Bush, you know, um, all of these, you know, the, the fact that, that former administrations end up with, you know, a selection of classified documents at the end of their administrations really isn't surprising. What was surprising, what, what kind of shocked anybody that pays attention to it, 
was the big deal they tried to make up uh, make up out of Trump's documents because this is something that is present in every presidential administration. Like I said, I mean, you know, Bill Clinton was in the 90s. We're talking, you know, 30 years ago was the start of his presidency. And he, you know, 20, 25 years ago, his presidency ended. And there are still, you know, public documents, still classified documents in possession of the... And the reason we know this is that the, the National Archives is aware of it. <laughs> so it's just one of those things that, that it happens. So... Yeah, folks, these classified documents were not planted by the Republicans. Um, they were kept by Vice President Biden for whatever reason. I think that they are sadly not aware of how much exists and where it is to be found. Remember that some of these documents, you know, they may have all been together when he left the White House, but now they're found scattered in several locations, I think, uh, to my to my knowledge, here's where these documents were found: the office at the University of Pennsylvania, the Delaware residence, and the D.C. offices of not and and I don't mean his presidential offices. I mean the D.C. offices of. Uh, Joseph Biden citizen. Um, so, you know, these are the, as far as I'm aware, those are the locations where these documents have been found. They were probably all in one point, one place at one time, but his, he's moved in and out of offices. You know, and he had, he's, he's used different office spaces since the end of the Obama administration, and it looks like these documents have been shuffled to different places until finally some of them even ended up in a box in a garage. Um, and and just, you know, we've all had things show up in a box in the garage. I've got boxes in the storage shed in my yard that are full of things that I'll go through that stuff later. So you stuff it in a box and stick it on a shelf whether you ever go through it or not. Um, when my mom passed away in 2019, when we cleaned out her condominium, we found boxes that had been packed in 1977 when we moved out. From, actually, they had been packed in 75 when we moved from Atlanta to Macon. They had been packed up in the Atlanta house and those boxes traveled from the Atlanta house to the Macon house, to the Missoula apartment, to the Frenchtown house, to the Missoula house, to finally mom's condo without ever being unpacked. You know, we're talking 40 years, 40 plus years. So, you know, this happens. Things get packed up and they get shuffled around and that that's why they keep discovering stuff because they're searching his properties and finding things because I'm not sure he remembers them um, just to, to speak to his mental acuity, um, which is declining. I, I'm sorry, go back and watch. You can watch this. I mean, 
back in the 1980s when he ran for president, I think it was the 88 campaign that he was running for president. And it came out that, you know, he, he had to withdraw from the race because it came out that he had, he had lifted whole speeches from the UK's labor leader, Neil Kinnock. He was able to remember those speeches and give them as if they were his own. I don't think he could do that now. Um, watching him try to read the statement about the classified documents last week was painful. Um, and just watching the speeches that he gave in the 80s, in the 90s, even during his vice presidency just six years ago, it is clear that the man who is in the White House now does not possess the mental acuity of the man of just 10 years ago. Um, and so I'm not sure that he even remembers why he took these documents and what they are or where they are. And the fact that he's shuffled around between residences and between offices in the six years since the end of his vice presidency is, you know, who knows where these things ended up. And so he's got people searching for these documents or his handlers have people searching for these documents because they don't know what's out there. And, and we still don't know what all these documents were. I heard uh, Senator Ted Cruz this morning saying that at least one of the documents or sets of documents was code word level secret, which is the highest level of classified document. So uh, I, we don't know what that was, of course, because we haven't been read in on it. Um, and it could be that it's nothing important. Like I said, they, they classify stuff they don't really need to. But uh, but be that as, as it may, this is, you know, a big deal. And one of the things that looking at this that I'm thinking of is the fact that this may well be the Biden... The, the, the Democrats that are opposed to Biden running in 2024 making their move. Um, you know, the deep state is real and it is liberal controlled. And if the liberals in power, and I don't necessarily mean elected officials, <laughs> I mean the ones pulling the strings, if they've decided that the time of Joe Biden is ending, this could be the move that they're making. Not to get him out of office right now, but to make sure he doesn't run in 2024. Because they're looking at Pete Buttigieg. They're looking at, at Gavin Newsom. They've got, they've got some Democrats that they would love to see in the White House instead of uh, Joe Biden, um, the new the the leader of the Democrats in the House, this uh, Jeffries guy, I can't remember his first name, Akeem Jeffries, he reminds me so much of Barack Obama. Did you see that speech he gave? the 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 speech that was introducing the new speaker, where I mean, 
it, it was so Obama-like um, that it was, you know, he may be somebody they're looking at. So the Democrats, they, they may well have had enough of Joe Biden. And so this is allowing, you know, or forcing Joe Biden not to run in 2024. That could very well be. And, and frankly, Kamala Harris's political career is over. She, even if Biden runs, I don't know if she's going to be the VP on the ticket. We're just going to have to wait and see. Um, her, her gaffes and her inability, there was a video last week of, of just an, another spewing of word salad from, from Kamala Harris that was just embarrassing. You know, she spoke for, for minutes without saying anything. And, and it was, just, you know, you just sit there and you want to do the, the dog thing, tilting the head, like, what is she saying? And then last week, out of nowhere, came the push to ban gas stoves. Okay, folks, this was coordinated. This all hit at exactly the same day. Newspapers... Network news shows and liberal politicians all suddenly calling for the ban of gas stoves. Right here, right now. Well, it turned out that this call to ban gas stoves was based on a seriously flawed study published by the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health which it turns out is the journal of a World Economic Forum-funded group, uh, an environmentalist group, an anti-fossil fuel group. According to Steve Malloy at JunkScience.com, and if you're not familiar with JunkScience.com, add that one to your browser bookmarks. That's one to check out quite often. According to... Uh, Steve Milloy at JunkScience.com. Here's a quick summary of some of the principal flaws of the study that uh, was used to as the catalyst for this push to ban gas stoves. Malloy writes, now the study said, this just to get what the study said out there, the study said that 12% of childhood asthma is caused by growing up in homes with gas stoves. That's the concluding remarks of the study. Here's what Malloy writes. It's not actually research on children. It is a meta-analysis of previously published and ignored studies, a study of otherwise unpersuasive studies. The authors did a literature search for previous epidemiological studies on gas stoves and asthma in kids, and then just mix those results together in an effort to contrive statistical significance. This is a bogus technique for a number of reasons, including, including publications bias in the component study, i.e. studies with null results aren't published. <laughs> um, the study results, including component studies, are weak, 
statistical associations, i.e., their noise range correlations. What does that mean? It's it's this is all background clutter, and they're trying to pick out an aspect of the background clutter and put all the blame on it. it says the the study results, likely including the component studies, are not statistically significant either. Then he writes, asthma is an allergic disease. There are no allergens in natural gas. So the study has no biological plausibility. No one knows what causes asthma in children, and so competing causes cannot be ruled out. The claim that gas stoves are responsible for 12% of childhood asthma, an epidemiological concept called attributable risk is entirely entirely bogus because epidemiological studies can only be used to associate exposure with disease. They cannot be used to determine risk of disease because the underlying data is not representative of the population and epidemiological studies are just statistics, i.e. correlation does not equal causation and cannot be used by themselves to determine cause and effect relationships. So this is a, a totally bogus study that is, is kind of akin to Kamala Harris's word salad. When you dig into it, there's no there there. Um, and it's being put out by a group that is, is anti-fossil fuel, and natural gas is a fossil fuel, and is being put out and is funded by the World Economic Forum, which is, you know, the, the embodiment of a Bond villain super organization. Um, and this, this International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health reminds me of the old Centers for Science and the Public Interest. Don't hear much from those guys anymore. But back in the 90s, they were at the heart of a whole bunch of food stories about how bad this or that food was for you. Um, <laughs> I remember back in 1994, Rush Limbaugh said that this was five guys with a fax machine. Um, it, it's not some huge scientific think tank. It was an agenda group who put out press statements. And back in 1994, they tried to get movie theater popcorn banned. I remember this. This was all over the news. Movie theater popcorn is unhealthy. Now, what was the, the boogeyman in this story? Why was movie theater popcorn so unhealthy? Because movie theater popcorn is cooked in coconut oil. And I laugh about that because here we are 30 years later and coconut oil is now believed to be one of the healthiest cooking oils around. Yet back then it was the reason why movie theater popcorn needed to be banned. Folks, this is typical leftist garbage. It really is. So, 
you know, I'm going to go as soon as we're done with the podcast here, cook my breakfast on my gas stove and I'm going to enjoy it. And while there are no children in residence here at Squirrel Manor, I'm not worried about causing asthma for anybody. Now, what's the underlying thing behind this ban, this the push to ban gas stoves? I think there are a couple. First, the, the entire global warming hoax, and it's a hoax. That's still existing. I mean, heck, they just trotted out Paul Ehrlich again. I mean, talk about somebody that's totally de discredited, yet they trotted him out a couple of weeks ago. So you've got the, the whole global warming thing, get rid of fossil fuels. Everybody's flying to Davos, Switzerland in their private jets for the World Economic Forum to try to make sure nobody else can use fossil fuels or fly in private jets. Yeah. Um, and then they'll go back to their private yachts and, and issue press statements about how they've helped save the planet. So, you know, this whole anti-fossil fuel, which is... The, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I remember the first big environmental conference post the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it took place in Seattle, I believe. And at this conference, which previously nobody had ever heard of, at this conference, all of a sudden you had all of these protesters and animal rights people and climate change people and everything. And, and to reference Rush Limbaugh again, he pointed out that the environmentalist movement is the new home of world communism. Um, it is now the, the environmentalist movement and threats to the environment and we have to do this and we have to do that. It is these calls to save the planet that the world's communist dictators have been using, you know, communist dictators and wannabe dictators, have been using to advance their agenda of control. It hasn't been, you know, because they, 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 they had to, this is their camouflage. This is the, the ghillie suit they're wearing in order to try to slip past the, the defenses. And he's absolutely right. So we see the, the World Economic Forum, bunch of communists, the environmentalist movement, bunch of communi communists, and, and we see all of this, and this is all of their push for control. Now, one of the things that we see is the fact that in... There, there, I, I just saw a thing this morning that the, somebody in the, the Parliament of, of Scotland saying that the, the day of the private automobile is coming to an end. And they want to see private automobiles done away with. Folks, that's the whole push for the EVs, the electric vehicles. Electric vehicles don't have the range. Electric vehicles don't have the convenience of a gasoline vehicle. In, in about six weeks' time, 
I'm going to climb into a car and in a day and a half, I'm going to go from the piney woods of Montana to the San Fernando Valley to attend the Shepherds Conference. There's not an electric vehicle that could make that trip in that time. Oh, sure, you could make the trip. But the charging time along the way would more than double the trip. Removes any convenience in, in the travel. They want to restrict your movements. Because by restricting your movements, they have better control. And they want to, you know, they've been wanting to get rid of fossil fuels since the 70s. You know, during the 70s oil crisis, when, when we had the lines at the gas stations and everybody was, was burning OPEC and effigy and all of that, there was no shortage of oil. There's no shortage of oil now. You know, there's no reason for gasoline to be three, four dollars a gallon. It, it, there just really isn't, other than bad economic policies on the part of the government. And so, the, the, okay, if if what's their reasoning behind it? You know, well, if everything is electric, which we do not have the generating capacity to do, folks. You know, the same California government that's trying to ban gasoline vehicles is telling people not to charge their electric cars because of power shortages. Because they haven't built new power plants in California in 40, 50 years. They don't have the generating capacity to power all of these cars. You know, hottest days of the summer, they start having blackouts because the air conditioners are drawing too much power. And it's 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 not because it's not possible to generate the electricity and and the the quote unquote green tech doesn't generate enough electricity. The 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 windmills and the solar panels will not generate enough electricity. Um you know the honestly the best source of electricity is nuclear. Yet, it's been demonized, and you can't build a nuclear power plant anywhere. You know, uh, in, the, in the 1980s, the, the, the liquid sodium reactors were developed and tested. And they couldn't make them melt down. Well, the 1980s is 40 years ago, folks. Coming up on 50 years ago. You know, 40 years ago. Next year is my 40th high school reunion. Because I graduated in 84. So, when you, when you look at the technology that existed 40 years ago with the liquid sodium reactors, had Fukushima in Japan been using liquid sodium reactors, the disaster in the wake of that tsunami never would have happened. The reactors would have just shut down. There wouldn't have been radioactive releases or anything. Now, granted, that was a bad place to build a reactor in the first place, and there were other there were huge design issues. So we're using the what what nuclear power plants we have are using outdated technology, and no new ones are being built. And the new ones would be much safer. And yet, that's our best method for generating 
vast amounts of electricity at relatively low cost. And were we to do that on a global scale, we could improve the living standards all over this planet. We're not doing it. Instead, we want electric vehicles that use expensive and environmentally damaging rare metals in the construction and don't last long and, you know, need expensive re battery replacements, which are being, you know, manufactured from materials that's being mined by little children in third world countries not environmentally friendly. An, a, an electric vehicle, your newest Chevy Volt, does more economic or more ecological damage than a brand new full-size gas-powered pickup truck does. And that's just a fact. And it's demonstrable. And and the fact that people are trying to advance those things as the environmental saviors of the planet is absolutely ridiculous. So this whole International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, it's a boondoggle. It's an advocacy group masquerading as a scientific research organization. And we've seen this before. And the fact that all of this came out at the same time is just ample evidence that this was coordinated by the world's leftists who want to control you and me, not for our betterment, but for their own enrichment. And so we need to be aware of this. And, and do check out junkscience.com. Lots of good stuff over there. Um, stuff on on global warming and what a hoax it is and just pointing out the flaws and all of these these studies that are being touted as scientific in order to drive this world's agenda this world with devils filled that would threaten to undo us all right folks that's squirrel chatter for today have a great monday have a great week um wish you all the best Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.